Hey there, Tufted Puffin, how do ya do? Why are you in decline? Is it us or you? You're a goofy bird, I'll admit, but don't pack up, you're not yet through. How can we save a species just like you? Thank you for tuning in to Hen and Eric Go Birding, a podcast by birders for birders. How'd you like that one? That was good. I liked it. I, I feel like it's kind of accusatory that the puffins are getting blamed for their decline. I'm just asking. It's just a question. <laughs> it's just a question for them. Okay, anyways. I'm Hannah, and he's Eric. And we created this podcast to share our adventures, sometimes misadventures, and opinions that we have on birding topics. We are definitely not experts in anything we discuss that might be controversial. We want you to remember that there are our own opinions, and they might be different from yours. And we're also not professional singers, so yeah, just take that into consideration. But Hannah's a really good songwriter, so... Oh, you're so it's, sweet. It's one step towards being professional at something. <laughs> <laughs> yep, not very professional at all. No. So um, we'll go quick with this, um, with our intro here, because we have a lot to get to in this episode. Um, so, bird news, what do we have going on, Hannah? So, uh, Women in Step, that Champions of the Flyway team that I've told you guys about for a couple months now, um, it's still uh, like a month away. I think a month from today we'll be in Israel t as of recording. <laughs> nice. Yeah, and so we just had a huge donation recently um, to the team. It was about $1,000, which is amazing. And it was also anonymous, so we're not sure who did it. But thank uh, you very much. Yes, thank you so much. And that brings us over our um, second goal, which it was initially $6,000. And then we hit that so quickly, we were like, let's up it to $12,000. So we upped it, had a couple huge donations, and now we're above $12,000. And we decided to raise the goal again, since we have another month, to $15,000. See if, see if we can get the record. Seriously, yeah, yeah, I think the record is twenty eight thousand, but um, in the last couple of years, the highest has been fifteen. So please, please help us out. Um, we'll be at the uh, San Diego Bird Festival um, mm -hmm. as of this recording. Once you guys are listening to yeah. this, we'll be there. Yeah, but anyways, if you're there, give me money. Um, <laughs> we'll have cool hats on, so check it out. Uh, not, not money to us, money to the Step Eagle. Yeah, I don't want your money. <laughs> the Step Eagle needs your money. So, anyways, thank you all for everybody who contributed to that. Uh, I'm really excited to get to Israel and, uh, you know, do our part to save the step eagle and also have a fun competition. Yeah. And we also, after this, we, we, we also, um, had a Facebook recommendation from our, um, internet friend and, co um, colleague, podcasting co po colleague, yeah, podcasting colleague, uh, Susie Buttress, the she, casual birder. Yeah. She hosts the casual birding, co um, podcast, which if you haven't listened to that, you definitely need to go listen to that. It's a very, a very soothing podcast that uh that's a good word it's well it's 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 casual no i, I agree I, I enjoy it she's 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 smart she's uh like relaxing it's 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 fun to listen to her but she gave us a recommendation on facebook um and it reads the show appeals to beginner bird watchers and experts alike hannah and eric share their enthusiasm for birding and delve into the deeper issues of conservation representation of women in birding in the birding community, and practical advice on how you can see these birds too. I loved their Scandinavian adventure and have taken notes for, for a future trip myself. Nice. We're glad we can help you out. Yeah, so th thanks, Susie, for recommending us. and uh, Learn from our mistakes. Yeah, learn from our mistakes. <laughs> to and, do it better. Uh, and, and I hope we can get over there um, and, and visit you over in England soon. Yes, definitely. Or soon-ish, maybe, hopefully. 
someday soon. We'll, we will definitely get over there and maybe we'll try to hook up at some point when, when you make one of your, one of your trips over here to the States so we can get together and go birding somewhere. Yeah, that'd be fun. So, uh, for this last episode, which was about, uh, bird science, mm -hmm. our highest science, science, our highest listenership, um, for that was out of Portland, Oregon, which hometown heroes there. Um, <laughs> thank you guys so much for, for coming out and listening. And Seattle was second on that. Um, so as always, you know, if you want your, us to name your city, get all your friends in that city to listen to it. <laughs> um and especially like if it's a really hard city name to pronounce like that'd be fun oh that would be fun yeah, yeah. just give us some like weird city names i mean um tweaksbury was the hardest that we've had so far back yeah, that's um, true. like a couple months back Twe tweaksbury um england was one, one of the hardest ones we've had so far so if we can get something that's crazy hard that would be awesome we promise you we won't google it to like find out how to pronounce it oh yeah we'll make it up yeah. <laughs> um, and also, this last episode was our biggest first week for an episode. Yeah, that's that's super awesome. I don't know what caused the drive, but uh, there was definitely a huge push, especially in the last, like, two days, to that we suddenly got a whole bunch of listenership, like, randomly. So, thank, it's so awesome. Thank, thank you. I hope you didn't listen to one episode and just drop us. <laughs> <laughs> but um, we appreciate it. We do this because we love birds and we're passionate about sharing the love of birds. And it's so cool that we can grow and, you know, engage more people. So thank you. So um, also, uh, there's like podcaster competitions all the time i don't know if you've seen that on twitter but there's like always like fill out your favorite this fill out your favorite that <laughs> um because podcasting is i mean it's there's professionals that do it but it's also kind of underground too so like there's a lot of different organizations that like give awards and there's a lot of podcasters yeah seriously so right now there is a competition with blueberry which i believe is one of the hosting uh services to name your, or to, you know, um... Is it, is it a competition or is it like an awards thing? I guess it's probably an awards. Like, like, like the Academy Awards of Podcasters? I don't know if it's that. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> but anyways, they're asking for people to nominate their favorite woman podcaster. And just gotta say, like, I'm a woman. And that would be super cool. We just lost our local... We Eric and I were nominated. <laughs> it, we live in Cannon Beach, Oregon. We were nominated in our city for Volunteers of the Year, which was funny because everybody else was like... A single person. This person, this person, this person, Hannah and Eric. <laughs> so. Uh, we're, we're only one person, apparently. Yeah. But we lost to the Cannon Beach Fire Department, which, I mean, they're doing better. Oh, seriously. And more they, than we are. Yeah, that's, it's no shame at all in losing to the, to the local volunteer fire department. Yeah, we that's, don't feel bad about that. No, they're, they are volunteering. But anyway, Getting it done. If you want to make me feel better about it. Go ahead and nominate <laughs> me for the favorite woman podcaster. We'll put up a link in the show notes if you feel so inclined to do so. I would appreciate it. It would make my day. And I'll also put my full name on there because it asks for your full name. And if I say my last name right now, Bushert, you might not know how to spell that. So I'll include that in there. Yeah. Hannah Bushert. Hannah Bushert. B-U-S-C-H-E-R-T. Or I'll oh. just write it in the show notes. You're right in the show notes, yeah. So also, um, just I'll the just other day. I'll just fill out the form for you. Yeah. <laughs> I'll just make up a bunch of emails and fill yeah, it out. Just fill, just fill it out every Okay, Spam sorry, it. go ahead. Ro ro robo, robo fill it out, you know. <laughs> They're going to be like, she had one million nominations <laughs> and everybody else had like 20. <laughs> Anyways, um, I just, 
just the other day, I got interviewed for um, for another podcast. Uh, um, Alex, he hosts uh, the podcast Time for Your Hobby, where he talks about uh, different people's hobbies, things that they do in their spare time. I think um, one of the one of the recent ones was a voiceover, which I don't know if he cool. if that guy was if it was his hobby as a voiceover. I didn't listen to the whole episode, so I don't know. I only, I, only, I fast forward and skip through it. But anyways, I um, I don't have a lot of time to listen to stuff. But he he interviews all about different people's hobbies, and um, he interviewed me about uh, birding and birding slash podcasting. I guess I don't know. Um, I think the episode's going to be coming out sometime in July. So I will, I, I would recommend you guys listen to his podcast if you're tired of listening to just birding as a hobby. Like listen to every, whatever, all the other hobbies are out there. The funny thing is, is that his hobby is asking people about their hobby. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> Alex's hobby that's is... That's like so meta. It's, it's a, yeah, definitely a meta hobby. But, um, but yeah, the episode about birding should be out sometime in July. Um, I... I'll, we'll we'll probably link it. We'll probably put it up on our social media when it comes out, just to just to promote him some more and promote uh, promote us on him. I yeah. guess. So you'll see it when it comes out. Yeah. So getting into the meat of the episode, um, this one was a Can lot. We get of... into the cheese of the episode this time. Oh, that this sounds week. delicious. Uh, so this this episode was a lot of fun because it was kind of a concept that I had floating around in my head for a little while, and then we put it into action, which is fun. Like, um, like a year ago. Yeah, <laughs> this one we've been working on for a while. So I'm on the Friends of Haystack Rock Board. So in Cannon Beach, we have Haystack Rock, which is 235-foot monolith that's right on the shore. And it has tide pools and lots of birds nest on it. And we probably talked about it before. But one of the very important birds that nests on it is the tufted puffin. And their species has been in decline for years um, due to a variety of different things. And as I'm in these board meetings and hearing about like the different people that are associated with trying to like recover the species, um, I had it in my, and all the people that we've met too, because we've mm -hmm. met Tim on the beach. He, um, and he'll talk about it later, but he goes down and he counts the puffins as a U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service volunteer. And... The more I thought about it, and one of the members on my board, he gave this beautiful, like, prose about his interest in puffins and why he was a part of it, and I don't know, all this meshed in my head, and I was like, we have to do this episode that that gets all of the people that are involved in puffins. Yeah, so so we wanted to talk, we, we, we interviewed three people for this episode. We interviewed uh, Tim Halloran, he's a volunteer on the ground actually physically counting birds on a daily basis all throughout nesting season. And he's great because you can oh, just yeah. walk up to him on the beach and he will tell you everything you want to know a about well, puffins. A wealth of knowledge. He'll give you a status update as, a, as everything like that. Super nice guy. Um, we interviewed Scott Pearson. He is a, a biologist, an ecologist working um, up in Washington. That uh, work, Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife. He is kind of overseeing the larger scheme of the science Involved behind puffins in collaboration with other agencies. And, oh yeah, ton, tons of agencies involved, not just Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife, um, U.S. and Oregon, and all sorts of things. And then we also got to sit down with John Underwood, who is a philanthropist and a member, also a member of the board for the um, Friends of Haystack Rock. Rock. And he has so much heart behind like this. This is such a heartfelt like. Puffins need to be around because puffin, puffins need to be around, sort of thing. And so we, we, we interviewed all three of these to get three different perspectives 
on puffins, their decline, their their conservation, all that information behind them. So I think it was a ton of fun. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it, it took us a whole year to get all three of these interviews together. <laughs> and we learned so much. Oh, my gosh. It, it was awesome. So first, we'll, we'll start off with uh, Tim, um, the... Puff Encounter. The Puff Encounter. We're here with Tim, who um, does puffin surveying at Haystack Rock in Cannon Beach, Oregon, where we live. And we've met Tim several times on the beach, um, out there doing the puffin surveys, and we, we take guests out to the beach sometimes to educate them about Haystack Rock and all that stuff. And, and kind of just to show off the puffins. Yeah. Because we're true. so close to the puffins. <laughs> and we, um, so we bumped into Tim a lot of times, and he's been great at talking to our guests and educating them on puffins, as well as many other people. So Tim, uh, why don't you tell us about yourself? Sure. I'm Tim Halloran, originally from Chicago. Moved out to uh, Portland about 10 years ago, now living in Vancouver, Washington. I've been birding since 1969. That's 50 years. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and I've been doing this project for U.S. Fish and Wildlife. Uh, this is my eighth year that we just are concluding today. And uh, when I'm out on the beach, I am noting the locations of the puffins. I can't tell the individual birds apart, obviously. <laughs> But I do have all the burrows numbered. They burrow into the turf up where the grass is on the north upper slope of the uh, haystack rock. They go in several feet and lay just a single egg that okay. they then tend for several months, as you know. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so I numbered the burrows a long time ago. I've been using the same numbering system which is completely illogical and would take <laughs> anyone else probably all summer to learn. So it's a project that I do on my own for U.S. Fish and Wildlife. I end up with a couple hundred pages of data at the end wow. of the summer. And then uh, Sean Stevenson, the biologist at U.S. Fish and Wildlife in Newport, mm -hmm. has the pleasure of tabulating it all and analyzing it yeah. and then uh, publishing a paper every year. Oh, wow. So, do you have, like, a map that, like, you could tell people, okay, well, that's A1, that's A7? Like... I do. It's a photograph that I've right. written the borough numbers on. I need to make a better digital version of that. Okay. So that I could make better use of it on the beach. Okay. But um, sometimes I tell people the borough numbers, and I, but generally, of course, in order to uh, tell them where I'm seeing a puffin, Mm -hmm. I need to use landmarks of various sorts that yeah. they can then... The square-looking rock poking out of the right side. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Huh. yeah. There's just a number of different landmarks up there. <laughs> so you, when we've seen you out there, you talk a lot to, to the guests that come up to the rock or the visitors right. to the rock. What are some of the like um, common questions that you get asked? Yeah, well, if I see people that have binoculars, I know they're probably looking for puffins. So if they don't stop where I am, I go to them and ask them if they are finding their target birds. Mm -hmm. So uh, then we chat about it. Um, I like to give them a little bit of the history of the study and how it has shown that the number of puffins here fluctuates around an average of 120. Okay. It's been below 100. It's been above 140. All right. Uh, last year, the estimate was 127. Okay. So it's a fairly stable population we have here with its ups and downs, and that's a good thing. We're glad to know that, and we wouldn't know it 
if we didn't have this survey going on. Yeah. So, so you have eight years of data. Is there, like, um, kind of incidental data from before that? Of, yes. No, yeah. And in fact, like it's be, not super scientific. The earlier stuff, but before I came on board, there were two other volunteers that okay. did one year each. All right. So there's ten years of data now. Oh, ten years of total data. And uh, before that, there were reports. Of as many as 800 puffins here oh my God. in the 1980s, oh my and there there's enough room up there for them. There's yeah. enough burrows. Yeah. Uh, the the burrows that I see in use are really on the fringes of the grassy area. Mm -hmm. The whole center area of green grass from the peak down. Yeah. Uh, I don't see puffins stopping in that whole area. It's all around hmm. the edges, the up and down the left and the right. And across the lower limits of the grass. Okay. Do you have any ideas why they're not congregating towards the center of it? Well, I I think they like the places where they can take off the most easily. Oh, I see. If All they right. can just step off and open their wings, you know, that's a great advantage to Yeah. Them. Okay. But, you know, that's just one idea. Yeah. Among probably a thousand other ideas that people have. <laughs> I imagine. Um, do, you, do you have an idea of potentially like how deep that dirt is up on top? I wouldn't think it's very deep. <laughs> I imagine if they're going in several feet, you know, maybe it's crevices in the rock okay. that they're accessing, or perhaps it's parallel to the surface, just okay. under the surface. But I wouldn't think that there's a huge thick layer of... Okay. So it, it's mostly like like guano that's decomposed into dirt, right? Up there. <laughs> Where did that dirt come from? <laughs> exactly. Has right? it been there since the last ice age? <laughs> well, I can't answer that question. Okay. All right. I, I, I get that question like yeah. all the time, and I'm like, I don't know. My best guess is it's just bird droppings that have decomposed, but I don't know. And windblown soil. With, yeah. All right. Though, though there wouldn't be that much coming across the ocean. Uh, yeah, two, two, yeah, 235 feet off the ground. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, who knows? Huh. So, um, what is it about tufted puffins that brings people to, to Haystack Rock? We've had guests that came all the way from California just to see them. Mm -hmm. what, what is it about them? Yeah, I've had people on the beach from all over the world. New Zealand, and everywhere. Uh, you know, it's a favorite bird of many, many people. It's just a very unique looking animal and people are interested in puffins. Uh, what other breakfast, what other bird has a breakfast cereal named for it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Is it your favorite bird? Um, possibly. I guess I spend most time with it. <laughs> it better be my favorite bird. <laughs> Well, is there anything else you'd like to say about um, all the work that you've done uh, volunteering with U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to count the puffins? It's a real privilege to be able to do this and to spend so much time on the beach for a good reason. <laughs> and what a gorgeous place to be. This yeah. morning, I did not see a single puffin. <laughs> but I saw lots of very interesting bird behavior. It's a fantastic place for anybody to come, even yeah. if you're not into birds. It's just gorgeous. Yeah, there's all sorts of nature. You have the, all the tide pools at the yeah. base of the rock that, if you don't even care about birds, there's all that mm -hmm. to explore, which is months worth of exploring all yeah, by itself. <laughs> but people should uh, bring binoculars yeah, and definitely. Uh, spend some time actually watching 
some birds, you'll see some interesting behavior and you might even be able to figure out or ask a volunteer what might be going on. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for volunteering to do this. Um, it's always fun when we, we see you on the beach and we get a chance to chat with you and we really appreciate you sitting down and telling us about puffins. We're wonderful and I look forward to seeing you and many other puffin people <laughs> out on the beach in the summer of uh, 2020. Yes. Yeah. So thank you for all bearing with us on that one. I know the audio is a little loud. Yeah, it, it, it wasn't that bad. I hope. I don't know. I hope I hope you guys didn't hate it too much. But we, we did that um, at a coffee shop in Cannon Beach or outside of a coffee shop in Cannon Beach. So we, we, we got the interviews where we could get them. Yeah, so. we we met Tim for this interview, um, at, like Eric said, at a coffee shop. And it was the very last day of his count and he got fogged out. Yeah. So it was a little bit earlier than we had all planned, but um, he lives in the Portland metro area, mm -hmm. and so he had to get back home. So we, we just had to do it real quick, yeah. and um, we thanked him so much for Oh, it was a fun interview, us. too. Yes, and he's a super nice guy, and I can't wait to see him in the next couple months when he comes back to count more puffins. Yeah, yeah, and like he was saying, the he at, at the end of his interview there, the... Puffins, one day he had a whole bunch, the next day there was none. So that's that's kind of how they go. They they show up all of a sudden, basically all at once, and then all disappear basically all at once, which is kind of exciting. Like, they'll, they'll, they'll kind of start tapering off, and then pff, they're all gone. So so if you're going to come and see them, you got to catch them in the middle of the season. Right in the middle of the season when there's the big bulk of them sometime June, July, August. Get out here when every other tourist in the world wants to be in Cannon Beach. <laughs> But you can get here early in the morning and then leave so you don't have to deal with all the people that are waiting until the sun comes up. <laughs> so um, next we have Scott, who, like Eric said, is a researcher that is doing a lot to study the ecology of tufted puffins um, in addition to other seabirds. But it was really interesting talking to Scott how he's been a birder forever mm -hmm. and just really invested in this research. It's really cool to talk to him. Yeah, so enjoy Scott Pearson and his uh, scientific take on the on the science side of tufted puffins. <laughs> Thank you so much, Dr. Scott Pearson, for sitting down with us for a few minutes and talking about tufted puffins. Um, so, yeah, just a few questions. The first, would you please tell us about yourself? Sure, um, and please call me Scott. Okay. <laughs> um, I uh, I grew up in the Midwest. I grew up in actually in Michigan, and um, I think I always was interested in the natural world uh, and I was very interested in backpacking and climbing and um, I ended up working for the National Outdoor Leadership School for a number of years and I taught courses for them okay. and then at one point I got um, excited about birds and I was I remember I was in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan and I was looking through binoculars and it was an ornithology class as an undergraduate and um, I, in my field of view, I could see a black and white warbler. I could see a black Bernian warbler. I could mm. see a yellow warbler. <laughs> and I could see a Canada warbler. And they were all in the same view. Wow. Yeah. And I just said, wow, that's, a, that's incredible. And, uh, and prior to that, I thought, oh, God, you know, I probably want to study something like mountain lions. Mm. Um, but the, got, big right, yeah. the big fauna. Right, the big fauna. And eventually I thought, wow, I really like dinky songbirds. <laughs> <laughs> And um, from then on, I just kept, uh, I ended up working on a variety of field projects. And um, I, there have been times in my life where I would call myself a birder. Yeah. Uh, and I got into birding in a big way. 
but then that would wane. And so I've had moments where I sort of where I'd really be into it and then it would sort of back off. Mm -hmm. And recently I've gotten back into it but kind of in a different way. Now really through photography. Mm. Yeah. And I really like to take pictures a lot. Uh, it's kind of a new way of looking at birds. Plus I revisit the birds with the photograph. And I also notice I pick up a lot of things in the photograph you don't pick up when yeah, you're looking yeah. at them through the binoculars if you have the time to look at them carefully. You, you get and 10 you, minutes looking at a little right. photo rather than yeah. the 30 seconds of the yeah. goodbye. And you notice unique things about it. Yeah. You know, like, oh, this one had pox on its feet, and I didn't see that in my, mm -hmm. with my binoculars, or you know, certain things you might not yeah. notice. You must have a better camera than we do. <laughs> <laughs> More skills. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> So, um, where did you go to school and where do you currently work? Okay. Um, well, I did my undergraduate at the University of Michigan and did my master's there as well. I took off some time and worked on a variety of field projects and ended up teaching some mountaineering wilderness courses in there. And then, um, then I, we moved out here, my wife mm -hmm. and I did. Um, and um, I had been working for the Manamet Bird Observatory on the mm -hmm. East Coast, yeah. and now it's called the Manamet, I think, Center for Conservation Sciences. But at the time, there used to be in, in the U.S. two big bird observatories. And there was on the East Coast, there was Manamet, and on the West Coast, there was Point Reyes. Mm -hmm. um, and it was kind of those two. And yeah. there really wasn't anything else there at the time. And eventually, the owls started popping up everywhere. Now it's like every single state. So right. Like, yeah. like four or five. Yep. Yep. <laughs> And I really like working working at Manamet. I really like working with the scientists um, there. I really loved going on net runs. Um, it was really fun to take the birds out of the net. Um, it was fun banding them and sexing them and caging them and you know sort of learning all the details about them. Yeah. Um, and I found that really fascinating. Um, and so then I ended out um, taking a job with the Nature Conservancy in Oregon. Mm -hmm. um, all right. And that was 1989. And then we've been out here in the Pacific Northwest ever since then. And um, I worked for the Nature, Nature Conservancy for several years, and I realized oh, I really like what the scientists do. <laughs> and so I decided to go back to school again, and that's when I went to the University of Washington and got my Ph.D. there. And I actually studied hybridization between two warblers. Huh. I studied hybridization between Hermit and Townsend's warblers. Oh, yeah. And um, Siebert Rower had been studying, he'd been, actually he's a museum person, he had actually been collecting them. And you've been looking at um, sort of how plumage changes across the zone. Yeah. And also why they were moving, because uh, the zones appear to be moving over time. So I ended up looking at why are the zones both narrow and why are they moving, and looking at sort of the behavioral and ecological reasons as to why that point would work. Huh. Oh, that's really interesting. And um, from there, I ended up uh, working for the state, and um, I started off doing more land bird um, work. Um, and got into shorebirds, and eventually I was hired in a position where I was working just on marine birds. Hmm. And that was a really hard transition, um, because I, in college I had never taken even an oceanography course. <laughs> really? So I was very terrestrial focused, huh. and you know, I was studying Hermit and Townsend's warbirds, yeah. and they're in these ridiculously tall uh, forests here in the Pacific Northwest. And uh, um, don't often find them out. No, in the sea don't stacks. find them in these <laughs> <laughs> But I, fortunately, I had uh, just wonderful people I ended up working with who were really helpful, uh, sort of colleagues that I still work with today yeah. that um, became great uh, friends and um, helped me make that transition. So that was exciting. Okay, so you, you work now with puffins. When, when did that, how long ago was that transition from terrestrial to puffins? I started working on marine birds starting in 2004. 
Okay. And have been working consistently on them since. I work on both birds in the ocean as well as shorebirds. Mm -hmm. And the, the primary shorebird I work up with is the snowy blowbird. Oh, all right. And so I, work, I was working on research projects to the north of here, and I work very closely also with the folks here um, who are doing the work in Oregon as well. And um, then the marine bird that I was initially working with was primarily the marble mealworm. And okay. I still work on that species today. Yeah. And I have a, a crew that works almost year-round on boats doing surveys for murelets. Um, <laughs> and that's funded a variety of different ways. Um, we were able to get enough grants and keep them funded. Um, and they're out there doing surveys all the time. Okay. Um, and then eventually there was interest within our agency in the puffin. Someone said, should we be listing the puffin? And I said, well, do we really understand the status of the puffin? And um, the more I looked into it, I realized we really don't. And that's when I got interested in sort of assessing the status of the puffin and sort of visiting the historically occupied colonies. And I found out that, that a high percent of them, over 40% of them, were no longer occupied. <laughs> so it was pretty clear there had been a decline. Something's happening. That yeah. something's happening. Yeah. You know, we're losing a lot of colonies. And similarly, here in Oregon, we were losing a lot of colonies. And uh, from that point, we ended up getting uh, the state decided to move ahead with listing the species. Mm -hmm. And so at that point, it becomes sort of a major focus of mine um, of why, why is it, you know, declining and, yeah. and what are the sort of the mechanisms for that and then is there anything we can do about it. <laughs> so why, why is it important that they're around anyways? That's always a really good question. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've, I've come, I remember I used to for a long time start talking about the utility of animals and the natural world to people and try to make that an important thing. And I just think that they're a beautiful animal and they, they deserve to be on the planet. And they make our lives better by being here. That's um, a good answer. Yeah. <laughs> I, I always feel like that's like, like a, almost a loaded question because it's kind of like, well, what makes anything more deserving of right. being here than anything else? Like, what are we to kill things just to kill things? Yeah, I know. I don't it know. is. You know, <laughs> what do puffins do for us? <laughs> they, get, they, they make they, us they happy. That's, joy. A, that's a yeah. great answer. Right. Yeah, that's a great answer. <laughs> yeah, you have all those people here who, you know, on Haystack Rock, and there's this group of friends of Haystack Rock. They're yeah. obviously fascinated by puffins. Puffins are really kind of a, a, a pretty bird in some ways, but mm -hmm. also kind of clownish yeah. in yeah. some ways. And kind of a fascinating looking bird. And it just draws your curiosity and your attention to it yeah. uh, compared to a lot of other birds. Well, and, and also you, you drive up and down uh, the coast here and you see tons of statues and pictures of puffins. Right. Sure, half of them are Atlantic puffins, but <laughs> we'll, 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 we'll avoid that. But they're still puffins. Right. And there's, they're, they're up and down the coast. So it's not, not only like those of us that care particularly about the, the rock and the wildlife on it, but just random people coming from big towns coming down to the coast. Mm -hmm. yep. They recognize, the, they recognize the puffin as a cool thing to see. Yeah. 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 That's really true. Yeah. I, I noticed in Cannon Beach, I saw all three species, <laughs> actually four species of puffin. I saw Atlantic, no, I saw Atlantic horned and tufted uh, on various <laughs> places yeah, to, in the city. <laughs> yeah, we're working on that. Yeah, we're we're going to start a vigilante graffiti thing. We're going to get yeah. some... Atlantic puffins We're removed and transformed yeah. into some tufted puffins. Do some painting. <laughs> so um, what methods uh, do you and your teams use to research the puffins? 
Well, we use boats to understand their distribution on the water. Okay. Um, and those tend to be survey crews running certain transects, so we can understand what space they use, where you tend to have higher densities and where you have lower densities. And then we can also run those same transects again year after year and understand is there change in those densities. Um, on those boats, we tend to have two observers, uh, one in the starboard, one in the port, and they actually are all connected by headsets to somebody inside the boat. Right. And somebody inside the boat is recording the data in real time. So every time, we don't just do puffins, we do all birds and mammals encountered. Mm. Um, and so it gets a GPS stamp, an XY, you know, latitude, longitude, and where that animal was seen, well, actually where the boat was when you saw it. <laughs> and then um, what it was, and, um, and sometimes we also put information about its plumage. Um, we certainly do that for murrelets, uh, yeah. as breeding plumage or as wintering plumage or something in between, or is it a young of the year? Hmm. That sounds like fun. Yeah, yeah. I, so, I, I couldn't do that. Yeah. No. So. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so boats is one way. Uh, another way we do our work is actually um, on colony. Okay. And on, on colony, we'll do a variety of things. Um, we'll often try to understand how many there are, how, where are they distributed, and then how many there are. And, and that really only becomes tricky when there are lots of them. Um, mm. you know, for example, some of the work we do on rhinoceros auklets, um, when I was first working on Protection Island, we knew there were many thousands of rhinoceros auklets nesting on that island, um, but we didn't know how many. <laughs> and so we ended up setting up a sampling scheme where you, you figured out where are the high density areas, where are your low density areas, and you're putting random plots into those, mm -hmm. and you ended up counting how many were th within a given plot. And then also you looked at how many were occupied, and we ultimately estimated that island had 35,000 nesting pairs Wow. Oh my on it. gosh. Yeah. That is a ridiculous number yes. of birds. Yeah. It's a <laughs> lot of birds on a single island, but the only way to get there, I mean, you're not going to count every single burrow, and so you would use a sampling scheme. Yeah. For puffins, uh, tufted puffins, um, unfortunately, there usually aren't that many, and so you can almost count them all. Mm. And we often are labeling all the burrows, and we mm -hmm. usually do that on photographs. We take images of the slopes and then we we actually put dots and number them and then we uh, look at activities going on in those burrows um, we can also uh, we can use what's called a fiber optic burrow probe and okay. those are cameras that are on a long cable mm -hmm. and you can snake that into the burrow and you have a gaming visor on your head <laughs> and so you're actually seeing what's what the, the camera on the end yeah. of this um, probe is seeing hmm. and you're snaking it in there and it has infrared and so it can see in the dark and you can then also get it to go around corners and snake back into a deep deep, deep tunnel a burrow yeah and you can see okay is there an adult in there is there an egg is there a chick um, do, do you ever have puffins nip back at the camera we do <laughs> oh yeah yeah we'll have some i Puffins, uh, not so much. Um, rhinoceros sockets occasionally oh, yeah. attack it. More often, they'll actually <laughs> they'll turn and try to flee. And if they're at the end of the tunnel, they'll sort of bury their head at the back of the tunnel and they'll stick their rear out towards them. Oh. <laughs> like, like an ostrich. Yeah, so. exactly. <laughs> but we usually don't we don't need to be in there very long. All we need to do is get the information we need. Yeah, and just, so we'll just, just see, see them for a second, and... and then we just split. Yeah. And, that, and we just don't want to disturb them any longer than we have to. Yeah. And chicks, chicks often, sometimes they'll just sit there. They're often, if they've been fed recently, mm -hmm. and they're like engorged and they're just trying to digest <laughs> all of those fish that were just, just in a food coma. Brought in. They're in a food coma, <laughs> yeah. 
and they'll just be sitting there sleeping, and they might open their eyes and peek at you, but generally, <laughs> yeah, they're pretty catatonic. Uh, that'd be pretty funny to see. Yeah. <laughs> so then um, there's also radio transmitters, right? And you haven't yep. had a whole lot of luck with those? We haven't, not with the Tufti Papa. Okay. Yeah, we're going to keep trying. Um, we have had more luck with the rhinoceros sockwarts, but less with the Tufti Papa. Okay. And we've had more luck even with, even with marble murals. Really? Uh, yeah. Huh. It is like so much smaller. I know. Yeah. Uh, there, we have to really worry about that and use very, very small transmitters. Yeah. But a marble murrelet is a very docile bird. Uh -huh. You get it in hand, it's incredible. It just really doesn't do much at all. You, you almost you go <laughs> like, I understand why you're in danger. <laughs> Whereas if you get something like a rhinoceros oclet in your hand, yeah. you're going to pay for it yeah. every way possible. It's going <laughs> to claw you with the, those really long claws. Tufted puffins will do the same thing and they'll bite you. <laughs> are, they, are they worse than woodpeckers? Are they worse than woodpeckers? I, the, one of the worst, my worst experiences with a bird was with a pileated woodpecker. Oh. And if you've ever caught a pileated woodpecker, they just sit there and they scream at you the whole time you have them. And yeah. imagine the, the volume of a pileated woodpecker, mm -hmm. but you've got that next to your ear. Right here. And you, at that point, you just, you just want to get rid of that bird. It's just, <laughs> it's awful. Uh, it was really cool to see the bird and yeah. have it that close, but... Uh, you really need ear protection. Oh my god! <laughs> I hope you have an opportunity to do well, that. I've, I've I've had golden fronted woodpeckers in hand. Oh wow! They are that they're, they're be, loud. That but, would be cool. But they're they're not nearly as loud as a pileated. So I don't yeah. know what a golden that would be a neat yeah. bird to see. I've I've, I've, I've gone. I mean, have in hand. Yeah, have yeah. in hand. Yeah, yeah, they're they're vicious though. They're, I mean, I I imagine they're just as bad as any other wood. They're the only woodpecker I've had in hand. Uh -huh. So. But I imagine they're just as bad as any other woodpecker, but just screaming and screaming and screaming the whole time you have it and trying to, if, if you don't have your hand in the right way, right. it tries to get you in the wrist. And, <laughs> right. And, and anywhere it can get to is trying to. Right. And they're not very happy to be in the hand. No. Yeah, I can't no. imagine there would be. That's amazing the different behaviors of every bird that you hold. Yeah. They vary within species, but then there's some really big differences among species. Yeah. Yeah, so has there, is, are there any conclusions? That you can rudimentary, rudimentarily draw, <laughs> however you say that those words, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, from from what you guys have done for, from your research so far, so far, uh -huh. or is there are you just kind of still in the beginning phases of finding out where we sit? We're we are in early stages. Um, a, a couple of things we can say is that the puffin has declined very dramatically, in, mm -hmm. in particularly in the California Current, and the California Current is a large current system that goes from Baja California all the way up to sort of the Washington, B.C. border, okay. maybe partway up Vancouver Island, depending on where you want to draw that upper boundary. Yeah. So it's a very large marine ecosystem. It, 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 it cycles in a certain direction, and okay. as you get in the Gulf of Alaska, that it cycles in the opposite direction. And so these currents move in different directions. And it okay. has similar threats um, within that system. And mm -hmm. so we've seen dramatic declines. We're also seeing... Um, Throughout the system, uh, dramatic declines in what we call forage fish, and I, okay. I, I kind of hate the term forage fish because it doesn't relate to anything <laughs> in terms taxonomically in terms of the fish. It's mm -hmm. just fish big enough. It's just fish meat. that are small, silver, often, and schooling yeah. is okay. what it means. And so anchovy, mackerel, and herring, herring sand lance are sort of the ones you think of. Yeah. But even for something like a puffin, they'll eat things like juvenile rockfish. Mm. Um, and sometimes they're eating a lot of juvenile rockfish. Yeah. Um, so for them, the, that could be a forage fish. 
And the salmon people hate this, but juvenile salmon really are just like a forage fish for, yeah. for a lot of predators. Um, so it, it really is They're a forage, forage fish. fish. <laughs> yeah. Although it's usually never put in that group. Yeah. Yeah. Not huh. like carrying an anchovy. But the other, the other delicious fishes. Um, what else? What else are we learning? Um, well, we certainly are learning what we don't know and what we want to focus on. And I guess that's an important thing. Yeah. Um, you realize we really don't know much, much about where they go in the winter time, and that could be an important time of their um, their life cycle. Mm -hmm. um, also, where they go in their first few years of their lives. They spend those first few years of their lives out in the Pacific Ocean somewhere. I don't know where they are, mm -hmm. but they're out there. Yeah. And you know that could be a, a, a really important time. Um, so whether or not they will ultimately recruit into the breeding um, population. Um, we know that tufted puffins are very sensitive to human activities and disturbance, and much more than other puffins. Hmm. Uh, it seems to be much more than an Atlantic puffin. And particularly early in that nesting cycle, um, we found that um, we've been very fortunate, and we've, but we've also been very cautious um, that we haven't, we don't know of any abandonments that we've caused. Yeah. But we're very cautious about when we might use something like a camera, a burrow probe in a burrow. What we do is we wait until they've been incubating that egg for a long, for a while. Yeah. What you find is that birds become really committed to an egg the longer they've been incubating it. Mm. Yeah. So a clutch that's just laid, um, birds will abandon those very, you know, much more, yeah. they're much more don't likely to abandon. They don't have a lot of time invested. Right, they yeah. don't have a lot of time. It's a lot of energy by the female for sure. Um, and particularly like a puffin egg. There's a lot of resources put in that egg, yeah. um, and you're not going to be able to lay another one probably that year. Mm. Fortunately, you're long-lived. Um, you might live for 20-some years. Um, we know that we don't know how long tufted puffins will live, for sure, um, but we do know that, for example, um, I keep mentioning rhinoceros lockets. Rhinoceros mm -hmm. lockets are actually, actually a puffin, and so they're closely related to, um, to a tufted puffin. Um, they can live to be 30-some years in captivity. There was one in this just recently in Seattle that um, an aquarium that was thirty some years. Wow. Yeah. So, so, that's a so they can live a while. Yeah. 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 Not like an albatross or a parrot, but they can live a while. Yeah. Respectable life. Better than a songbird, right? Yeah. 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 Much better. Not than like a Townsend's warbird. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe you're, you're lucky to live four years. Yeah. <laughs> so how, what? When? How long do they before they're of breeding age? Because you, you, you said they may spend a few years out before they come in right. to the breeding colony. Is it like two years, three years before they start? Two, three, four, somewhere in there. All right. Yeah. And that's not well understood. Yeah. Yeah. That's but interesting. It's, it's I, I, I just assumed that it would be hatch year, next year they'd be breeding. No. Breeding, but now it's a little bit longer. longer? Yeah. yeah. It's interesting. And generally you find that true in seabirds. Yeah. Yeah. It's that longer period of time. But they're also longer lived. Yeah. 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 For songbirds, you need to be reproducing yeah. in your first potential <laughs> As soon as the weather's good enough. Yeah. <laughs> and you're going to do it a couple times that yeah. year, whereas a puffin gets its one shot. For that one year. egg, one shot, that's right. it. Yeah. Well, man, that's so much great yeah. information. Thank you yeah. so much. Do you have anything else to say about tufted puffins or maybe what people can do to um, help with what you do or just help the puffins in general? Good question. Um, well, I just think they're a, a, a remarkable creature, and I feel really privileged to actually spend time, whenever I'm with animals and spending time with animals, and particularly going in places where I know that other people are not allowed to go, Yeah, I, I take that seriously, and I, I, take, I really value that. Um, 
and so I feel very fortunate um, to spend time with those animals and I also try to really minimize my impact. Um, in terms of supporting work, um, there are a lot of biologists trying to do good things out there um, and they're doing it through nonprofits, they're doing it through universities, they're doing it through um, government agencies and I think sometimes that doesn't get recognized particularly in government agencies. Yeah. Um, and so sometimes that's a challenge. Um, and so I guess, you know, I think one thing I'd like people to, it'd be wonderful if people would realize that you know, people are, do often work hard and, and do care <laughs> a lot about their, what they're doing and um, uh, trying to get good results. Uh, sometimes it's hard um, yeah. and uh, tricky to solve the puzzle. But, you know, that's also kind of what's interesting too, is how do you solve that puzzle? Yeah, finding out what puzzle it is you're trying to solve. Right. <laughs> yeah. Where does this piece That's go? where you start first. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, thank you yeah. so much. We really yeah, appreciate you. it. Yeah. Thanks so much to Scott uh, Pearson for sitting down with us for, for we, we I think we ended up sitting with him for like well over well over two hours while we were talking and. Well, he's a wealth of information. Oh my gosh! Yeah. So it's, it, it was it was a lot of fun. Like had had a, had a couple beers and chatted and and talked. i'm sure he was worn out because he had just done a lecture for the, the yeah. non-profit in our lecture series yeah so, so he had already spent a couple hours talking and then and then we go and sit, sit down bother with him, him. And, and bother him more and talk so thank you so much for for willing to being willing to put up with us and, yes and this <laughs> so next up um we have john who is on the board with me as mm -hmm. i've said and he um it's really interesting the way he came about the board. I, I didn't really know a whole lot about him other than having sat through meetings with him um, once a month. But I, like I said, I heard him speak about puffins and how passionate he is about their recovery. And it's so um, amazing to hear, you know, his interests and what he's done to to pursue, you know, conservation of the species. Yeah. And, you know, that he, he kind of has a background in this sort of thing. Um, but then how he he, he he has a sciencey background which he does is, yeah uh, he, he gets into what his um what his career was before but uh he has a little bit of a sciencey background before when, when he was in his career and then as soon as he retired he really got into the um life sciences yeah so um again thank you yeah. john and everybody else and please enjoy john's interview so uh, we're here with John, who's on the board of the Friends of Haystack Rock with me. And uh, we're so happy that you were able to sit down with us for a few minutes and, and talk and with us. Yeah. <laughs> talk with us about Tufted Puffins. So um, would you uh, introduce yourself and, and tell everybody about who you are and what you do? Well, my name is John Underwood, and um, I've been interested in puffins since I was like seven or eight years old. <laughs> my uh, grandparents and parents used to bring me to Cannon Beach when I was six or seven, and that's, yeah. that's like 60 plus years ago. And there used to be just a, an incredible number of puffins on the rock. Yeah. And that's what really, you know, got me interested in them. And, but as I went to college, etc., I studied field biology at Oregon State and got a degree in, in 1969. And spent four years in, in the Navy as a corpsman, stationed in um, Balboa Naval Hospital, and then up in Bremerton. All right. And I got out there and married married Anne, and we've been married for 45 years. 
Oh, congratulations. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> so we decided that I needed to go back to school and get another degree. And so I got a, a second degree in molecular biology All right. from Washington State University. And came back into Seattle and started my career as a microbiologist in an analytical laboratory. Wow. <laughs> I was doing water, food testing, and primarily Good. dairy testing. Dairy products, both composition and microbiological work, etc. And I ended up uh, then moving on from a, a analytical lab to a, a smaller dairy processing facility in in Seattle, almost mm -hmm. McKesson. And I was the quality control manager and lab guy, so I was doing all the analysis for all the production processes, etc. And finished products, and then uh, they unfortunately shut down. Yeah. So I went to work for Dairyville Incorporated as a uh, lab guy. So you went from running QC to then mm -hmm. working for the giant, working for the man. Uh, <laughs> yes, and uh, started my career as a lab guy, and then uh -huh. got it. My ultimate goal was when I went back to college was to get into process production management. Okay. So I uh, moved up in the organization from a lab guy to a plant manager to a division manager to. Oh my gosh. Uh, in, you know, in charge of a strategic business unit, uh, mainly in, always in operations and production, mm -hmm. etc. And I spent my last four years as a president CEO of Daredevil. Oh my gosh! Oh man, yeah. I, I didn't. I had no. Henry never told me. About <laughs> I, that. I wasn't aware. <laughs> yeah, and that's, through, that's and, awesome. And through the years, um, Ann and I have two sons, uh, a forty-year-old son, Nathan, and a. Um, 35-year-old son, David. They yeah. both live in Seattle. They have children and grandchildren huh. for us. And we started bringing them down here when they were in diapers. Yeah. And we'd spend uh, time at uh, little small hotels uh, um, around the region. And every summer, we'd come back and we'd eventually find a place to stay for a week. Mm -hmm. And then they'd grow. And, and uh, when it came time to have a find another second home, Cannon Beach. Yeah. You know? yeah. What better place is yeah, there? Yeah, yeah. And they, they just love it. And uh, so we bought a home and they come down and with their kids. And, they, and what my ultimate goal is to, is to preserve the Puffins for that next generation, for my grandchildren's yeah. generation. That's what it's all about for me. And um, so, like I said, back in the 80s, there were thousands, hmm. 4,500 Puffins. Somewhere I think that's the statistic that uh, here, here at the at this rock. Oh my gosh, oh. I could not imagine that. Yeah, yeah that's crazy. They're just swarming over there. There'd oh. be no room for the MERS. <laughs> that, that, that would be fantastic if we yeah. could get back to that. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So like, I think what do they say? 20, 27 pairs last breeding mm -hmm. season. Mm -hmm. well, there there were about a hundred birds. Yeah. 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 I can't imagine thousands. Thousands. That would be fantastic. <laughs> it's interesting. Um, I know this gentleman that's a world-class decoy carver, and I, you guys should come to my house sometime and see my carve. Oh uh, yeah, no, we'll carve puffin. That sounds oh, awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> I I asked him to carve me a, a puffin, mm -hmm. and so I got my telescopic lens on my camera because he wanted to be able to see where the burrows were, what the side of the rock looked like where they where they lived, so he could recreate that in wood. Huh. And so I took a ton of pictures, and even back then, this was probably 
oh, 10 or 12 years ago, mm-hmm. there, there were burrows, you know, no, not there. a thousand, but <laughs> there were, you know, maybe a hundred burrows active. Mm-hmm. And I, I have them on my family in Quincy. So he, he carved the, the Cannon Beach Sojourner. That's the name of the carving. Yeah. And he did research at the uh, LA Natural History Museum and such. Fabulous. You have to come over and see it. Yeah, yeah that's awesome. We will, definitely. <laughs> so that's how we ended up here and, and what my interest is. So how did that all loop around to... Um, so you were interested since you were a little kid, and then you had this career and family. So, and then you came back to Cannon Beach for you know the long stay. Uh, how did how did you decide that you wanted to in, invest more interest into protecting the puffins? Well, my wife and I love to walk, and so we every we get up in the morning in, in the spring and summertime, and we walk down to the rock, mm-hmm. and then and then ultimately we got to, to visiting Tim. So every uh, time we'd come down, Tim would be out there in his chair with his <laughs> binocs and his yeah. body scope. And, well, Tim, what's the count? You know, what's the count? And mm-hmm. every summer it was, you know, maybe there's 100, and yeah. maybe there's 80, maybe yeah. there's 60, yeah. maybe there's 40. And I think it was about the fifth summer with that declining number of, of birds on a rock. Yeah. So we're Ann and I are walking home to the house, and we said we've got to try to do something here. Yeah. And by the time we got home, we came up with this project. Yeah, protect protect, protect our, our puffins. puffins. Wow. And we decided that we would. Well, then I got in touch with uh, it was the Haystack Park Awareness Program, and then ultimately the Friends of Haystack, mm-hmm. and started working with them to develop the, the sweatshirt and, hmm. and everything else there. For those of you that can't see, he, he's wearing a, a nice, warm, thick, gray sweatshirt that says, Protect Our Puffins, with a picture of a horn, or a picture of horn. A t- <laughs> oh my gosh, I'm, wow. I, just, oh, I need to leave, yeah. I'm out of here. No, a picture of a tufted puffin and a picture of Haystack Rock um, together. I won't post it in the show notes yeah. if you want to buy one for yourself. Yeah, yeah. So, by the time we got home, we decided to do this. I started working with uh, both organizations, and primarily the uh, Friends of Haystack Rock. And we made the decision that we would donate $10,000 worth of these sweatshirts. To oh, the, man. Wow. To the organization. Yeah. And ultimately, that, that should result in the organization being able to generate about $20,000 worth of, of income. Mm-hmm. And um, we decided that we wanted to really focus on creating more awareness for the puffins and then being able to uh, put some money against research. Yeah. And ultimately, that's we then got hooked up with uh, the Audubon Society in Portland. Uh, we took some of those dollars and helped them with the oyster catcher and the uh, survey of the puffins. Yeah. Um, then we got hooked up with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife with Sean Stevenson. So we bought some transmitters, and <laughs> um, we're, uh, so we're trying to get the transmitters on the birds to find out where they go yeah. in the wintertime, what they're doing, nobody really knows. Half the year that we don't have any idea what these birds are doing. No idea. You can't imagine. I mean, they they just go out there and they bob around <laughs> for six months out in the middle of the ocean. Um, nobody really has a clear idea what they're eating, where they are. Yeah. Uh, are they in, in rafts? Are they you know, small groups? So it's we, a lot of ocean out there to... It's a huge amount of ocean. And... <laughs> 
and they're declining. So if there's something out there that's impacting them, whether mm -hmm. it's out there or here, or com combination of all those factors. Yeah. But we need to be able to find that out. And um, the transmitters would at least tell us where they go. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a yeah, very that's, important first yeah. step, at least. Yeah. So that's been a, a kind of an arduous journey, trying to get permission to put transmitters on the birds. It had to go through the, or Sean did, had to go through the bird banding laboratory to get permission. Mm -hmm. uh, we didn't get it. Oh my for, gosh. For here. Oh. But uh, Scott Pearson got the um, banding letter for, for Washington. Okay. So then we started working with Scott and Sean, and ultimately we gave some transmitters to uh, Scott. Okay. And then he went out to um, Destruction Island, I think it is. Okay. Yeah, and was able to ban one bird. <laughs> uh, they're they're pretty wily little guys, and uh, ultimately he he banded one bird, and uh, that bird transmitted for five days. And there's you know the, the transmitters were supposed to be good for sixty to to one hundred twenty days, yeah. whatever. And uh, we think that it was attached to the back of the, of the neck. The bird just Ripped it off. Oh, jeez. <laughs> they, they, don't, they don't want us meddling in their business. They don't. <laughs> you know, and even though we're trying to protect them yeah. and find out what's going on with you, etc. Uh, they don't know that we're trying to help Yeah. <laughs> so now we're on uh, plan B, which is uh, a more uh, technically advanced transmitter mm -hmm. that's smaller, that can be attached to their leg, um, and would last much longer. So like an ankle monitor. You kind of, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is what happens when they're bad. We put ankle monitors yeah, and, and, on them. You know, and it's interesting because they come back to this, they, they, they pair up, but once they leave the rock, they split up. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then they, they'll come back to the same burrow every it's year. The same pair to the, the same burrow. Well, they'll meet up mm -hmm. at the burrow. Not, they don't necessarily come back together. Oh, I see. Because they go out there and mess around with other puffins or whatever. <laughs> whatever it is they're doing. Yeah. And so they have to kind of reconstruct the burrow. And so they have that's why they have this really the strong big, yeah. beak for two reasons. One to to get the gravel and rocks out of their burrow so mm -hmm. they can lay their egg and then when they go out to to catch feed that they bring them back and you see the fish streaming out of the yeah. out of their bill. So so it's a very strong tool for them. Really good at breaking transmitters. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so uh, I just talked to Scott a couple of days ago, and yeah. um, we're moving on to transmitter number two. All right. And again, good. trying to generate more funds. That's why we the sweatshirts, and then mm -hmm. we moved into uh, coasters, and we've moved mm -hmm. into tote bags and t-shirts and hats and, and all kinds of stuff. Just, Lots of merch. All, yeah. all, all the swag you could ever want. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's all about being able to fund not only puffin research, but mm -hmm. in general awareness for the rock and, and being able to help other researchers with their... Yeah. Well, it's, it's a... Even if it's not a keystone or anything like that, protecting... Putting a ton of effort into protecting that puts saves multiple things you've got black oyster catchers you have murelets you have just a number of things that rely tidbits. on the shore yeah <laughs> and yeah. just protecting that and the feed fish and the whole ecosystem 
Exactly. Yeah. And we, we've hooked up both with Sean and Scott. Um, they're both part of the um, Pacific Rim Seabird Research Group. Mm-hmm. And uh, Scott is the chairman of the Tupta Puffin Technical Committee. <laughs> so, you know, they're trying to uh, establish that these birds need to be on the uh, endangered species list. That's ultimately where we're trying to get to. Yeah, I, I didn't realize that they're not. They're not. Oh my gosh. They're not. But num- numbers like these and they're not? They're yeah. not. That's crazy. Um, Washington State ha- has taken the, the lead in putting them on the state endangered species list, but yeah. Oregon has not. Oregon is kind of following the U.S. Fish and Wildlife or so they're not. So, so a species that had four thousand that now has eighty, yeah, yeah. or a hundred. So, huh. and the application for national uh, endangered species classification mm-hmm. is, I think it was submitted in November, or okay. December, sometime. But with the current administration, I, that may be tough. Yeah, that may be tough. Can't can't see a lot of other things getting added to the list. Of tough in this current <laughs> in, in the atmosphere we have right now. There we go. So yeah. that's enough of the political comments. <laughs> so, um, do, so was it super complicated to get the banding permission in in Washington because they're state listed? Is that what made it more complicated? I, you to know, do I think that? I think it was more an, an issue of there's much more awareness of the puffins in in Oregon. Mm-hmm. than there is in Washington, because the Washington coast is just Hard to br- brutally rugged. <laughs> yeah, The birds are out further on, a, on a, the rocks mm-hmm. in Washington. And uh, the concern with the bird banding lab was if there are uh, some mortalities, because I think there were some mortalities linked to banding of marble murrelets not wow. too long ago. All right. And so they're concerned about that. But they understand the need for the, the research to get, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, yeah, the, the greater good versus... But yeah. there was concern about the... Um, if there were puffins that showed up on the beach that had died, mm-hmm. and then they had, if they had transmitters on them, then there would be a huge blowback from, uh, yeah. from the, the, the public, population. Yeah. Yeah. Even though it's all about trying to get yeah. them to protect them. In order to protect them, you have to get the information. Yeah. If that information goes into the, the endangered species classification, mm-hmm. I, I, I guess I could see that because, like, something like like a Kirtland's warbler, like the random public isn't going to know. They're not going to. There's not going to be That's a big not outcry. An iconic species. Yeah, and a puffin's an iconic species yeah. that, like a bald eagle, you see a bald eagle the transmitter, you're like, why the heck is it? Yeah. Does Francis Haystack Rock have an uh, advocacy group? And we were able to get one of the uh, local politicians to write a letter to the bird banding lab. Mm-hmm. And it did have an impact because they uh, seem to be more willing to have Oregon banding uh, approved. <laughs> They've indicated to Lee Scott that they will approve banding of the birds here. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. I did not realize that would have that kind of effect. I, well, I was surprised, but it, it, it did. <laughs> no, it did. Yeah. So, so the the pro. I think we've talked about. We, did we talk about it, Scott? The banding protocol. How they do? I can't remember. Uh, do, do you do you know how, how they banded? Is it? Is, it's all in the boat, right? Where they go out in the boats and they well, they, 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 they've got a, a couple 
got to just traditionally they went out on a boat uh-huh. at the kind of the end of the season. Mm-hmm. The birds apparently wrapped up uh, off the rock or wherever they're they're nesting. Yeah, and they go out there at night in the boat mm-hmm. in spotlight and, and try to dip them, scoop them up. Yeah, um, huh. and that has been successful with other species, but I don't think they've ever been successful with puffins. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they're too wily. <laughs> yeah, and they dive and whatever. And so Sean, who's kind of the uh, bird dipping expert <laughs> and uh, unfortunately he didn't get to show his expertise because he couldn't get the permit but Scott was able to the one bird that he was able to ban he he captured it in its burrow in its burrow really yes huh. and uh, they tried all kinds of different methods with different bird bird nets and, yeah. and they, 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 apparently they're very uh, wary and they're very smart yeah, and ultimately what he did, he was hiding in the in a bush next to, <laughs> next to the burrow. You can imagine this. <laughs> and I'm, I'm just picturing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he's, he's, he's got like yeah. sticks on his shoulders. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. camouflage out. Exactly. exactly. And the puffin went into the burrow, and he ran out and put a net over the burrow. So then, it, you know, not the highly technical. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, put the net over the burrow, and then when the puffin came out. You know, it got caught in that, yeah. and they were able to ban it. And they actually use a group called, I think it's the Seed Vets. And they're uh, li- licensed veterinarians that do this particular work. Oh, really? Yes. Huh. So it's all, all as highly skilled and professional as possible to actually get it done? Absolutely. Yeah. So they have the, the Seed Vets, and I can give you the correct information on that. And then... Um, they collect uh, fecal samples. Mm-hmm. They collect um, um, feathers, so they can do genetic testing because there's some information that says, well, all of them in the California Current are related. Hmm. But now that they've been able to get samples of the feathers, I understand that there's unique genetic to each colony. Oh. Well, not so much like Oregon, maybe in, in Washington, mm-hmm. and then. British Columbia and Alaska. I mean, there's some overlap. Oh, I see. But they are genetically distinct. Hmm. Huh. It's interesting. Yeah. There's just uh, so much we don't know about the yeah. puffins that we need to get out there. All we know <laughs> is if, and I have a ton of, of articles, etc., in on my phone and my computer mm-hmm. that there's been tremendous die-off of the... Uh, Puffins up in Alaska, mm-hmm. yeah. tremendous diet up in the Privilofs and the Bering Sea, etc. Um, there's articles, same things happening with the puffins on the East Coast. Um, they uh, National Geographic did a whole seabirds uh, issue last mm-hmm. was it last year, or two years ago, and the puffins were included. And there, there are four things that are contributing to their decline: it's fishing, it's climate change. It's habitat destruction, and I can't remember what the fourth one is. Yeah. Um, but it's, in my view, it's all about climate. People disturbance or something, probably. Yeah, and they, they go out after a certain species of fish. And if the ocean is warming, that those fish are either deeper or they're further north. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if they're nesting here and they're going out to bring feedback to their uh, one puffling, 
Mm-hmm. They're they're trucking way out there yeah. to get them, get the speed, and you know sometimes they they themselves don't have enough energy to do that. Yeah, and it just you know, just snowballs. Yeah, so wild. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. So through all the efforts that you've done, and you know the friends of Haystack Rock and partners continue to do, what is your hope for the future of the species? That there's still puffins on that rock when my kids are down here, my grandchildren are walking the beach and they're not just digging with their little sand shovels in their buckets that they're interested in in birds and what's happening on the rock and there's still puffins there. There's still puffins there to see. Yeah. It's, they're so unique. They're so beautiful. For sure. They're, and, they're spectacular. <laughs> and, you know, this is really one of the only places where you can get close enough to see them. Yeah, yeah you can see them with the, with the naked, naked eye. eye. Yeah. Just stay, stay on the beach and they'll fly right over your head. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, forty feet away. Yeah, the <laughs> in Washington are, are too far out. You know, yeah. Alaska, it's too rugged, and, and British Columbia, Vancouver Island, and you can't get get to it. This is where you can see them. Yeah, and there's a lot of we'll be down there, and there'll be. I was talking to Tim one day. It was really interesting. It was a couple, and they uh, saw my sweatshirt. And they were, we were all talking to Tim, and mm-hmm. they came here specifically to see the Puffin mm. Puff, and they were Puffin fans. I think they were from East Coast somewhere. Wow. And they were so enthusiastic about being able to see the Puffins, and I said, boy, you guys are really interested. Puffin says, yeah, I have a tattoo. Really? A Puffin tattoo. And huh. she said, do you want to see it? And I said, no, that's okay. That's okay. So apparently she had a tattoo on her derriere. You know, but they were so excited. That's that's awesome. Yeah, that's all. And were, were, do you know were they birders or was it just that it was just puffins? Well, they well, I assumed that they were birders. Yeah. but we basically just talked about puffins. Yeah, yeah. Really all right. Interesting. Well, well, thank thank you for sitting down with us. It was definitely a lot of fun. I, it was nice to sit down with the former CEO of Dairy of uh, Dairy Gold here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, um, yeah, it was. I had a great career. You know, started out in a lab guy and went up through being plant manager and division manager and business unit managers yeah. and traveled all over the world selling our dairy products. And, and, and now you promote puffins. There we go. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you. You bet. It's been a pleasure. So thank you so much to John Underwood. Uh, again, just like Scott, we ended up sitting for a, cu- a couple <laughs> extra hours of just like, we're, we're, we're just, just, uh, enjoying conversation and just talking about everything everything under the sun um wait what being a wastewater technician like all, all sorts of things that <laughs> are just like everywhere so john was a lot of fun to to talk with and get, and get to know and there was something i wanted to mention he mentioned two names um scott and sean um throughout the interview a couple times scott um was the interview that was before john here um scott pearson Works for Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife as um, as an uh, ecologist, biologist um, with the with the seabirds, and then Sean Stevenson is kind from from what I understand is kind of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife counterpart to Scott. Yeah, so he's a wildlife biologist, and he's stationed in Oregon, and yeah. and they work in collaboration oh, yeah. um, to do this sort of stuff. Yeah, like we said at the beginning, it's it's 
many many agencies working together so you have the nonprofit with friends of haystack rock you have washington department of fish and wildlife oregon department of fish and wildlife oregon state parks, oregon state parks. you have the city of cannon beach u.s fish and wildlife it's just oh, the the, never the, the acronyms just keep getting larger and larger and larger so it's <laughs> it, like there's a lot of people involved and, and then that, that goes with every species that's either on the endangered species list or getting towards working that on it. or basically anything getting work done on it is covered by a million different acronyms of agencies and an alphabet soup of, of sorts. <laughs> so thank you so much for all of you for uh, joining us for these interviews. We yeah. learned a lot and we hope you guys did too. Um, I also just wanted to put another pitch in there about the Friends of Haystack Rock. So that is the board, like I said five times, that I'm on in Cana Beach and our efforts um, go towards the conservation and preservation of wildlife that lives on the rock and around the rock and uses the rock. Um, there's just a plethora. It's so much fun to walk through the tide pools and mm -hmm. like pick out nudibranchs. Well, not touch them, but like <laughs> find them. Um, and anemones and sea stars and just all kinds of cool stuff. And so we really want you to come out sometime and see puffins if you get a chance. The best time to do so is like the beginning of April through the middle of September. That's the puffin time. Yeah, and so spring break, basically, is when they start showing up. You see ones and twos, and then all of a sudden, boom, they're here in April. And then, like, like I said, September, Labor Day, basically. It's just all Where of a sudden, they go? They're, they're gone. So in, anywhere in that time frame, you're likely to see a couple, at least, and if you want to contribute to the Friends of Haystack Rock or Puffin um, Protection and Preservation, uh, we'll include in the show notes how to do so. We, Like John had said, he helped create that, that sweatshirt, the Protect Our Puffin sweatshirt. Which is super warm. It's really pretty, too. <laughs> um, so we'll put that on the website, how to order that if you feel so inclined to do so. As well as a couple other products that we've come up with. Uh, not us, personally, but yeah. the, the board has come up with. So... Um, I appreciate you guys uh, checking that out if you'd like, as well as any donations that come through, because we do want to save the puffins, mm -hmm. and it's so cool that there's these people that we can, like, talk to, you know, they're yeah. actually working on it, because how often, like... You know, like with wolves. Like, I have no idea who's out there protecting the wolves. I know that people are doing it, there's, though. Yeah, there's people, there's people out there protecting species, and you never really have a face to put with who it is that's spending all of their time... Thinking helping, about wolves. <laughs> ...helping and trying to restore populations. So it's kind of nice to be close to people, like Hannah said, that are doing that with puffins. And all these people do it because they love birds and they love puffins and they want to see them and have, you know... They want them to be there for their grandchildren and future generations. Yeah. Yeah, so coming up for us, we have a couple things. While you guys are potentially listening to this, <laughs> we are riding our bikes around the um, around Mission Bay for the San Diego Bird Festival. So, and we, and if you're listening to it later in the day, you might be, we might be speaking at <laughs> some workshops. <laughs> and we are doing a couple meetups while we're there. We're doing one on Thursday, February 27th um, at Amplified Ale Works. And you can find that information on our Facebook page. Um, and then we also kind of got coerced into doing a second one on Saturday for people who aren't going to be there um, on the weekdays. So I don't remember the where we're going to be, but it is on our Facebook page. So join us if you can. You don't have to drink. You can just come and hang out. And um, and meet, meet other birders. Yes, yes. So we want to meet that's other the, birders. That's the whole point. Especially, <laughs> you know, women birders that don't um, maybe 
aren't coming with somebody and want to meet somebody. Anyways, come and meet us. We wanted to facilitate a time to meet and get together that was no pressure. Just yes. Just hanging out. Exactly. So also, at the end of March, we are going to Israel. We've said it a bunch of times now. Oh, did you guys not know we're going to Israel? <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I'm just finding this out now. <laughs> but we are, um, Hannah's participating on the first ever all women international birding team. So yeah, woman so, in step to support support the women in step, and um, we'll definitely be talking as as we get closer and closer to it. And then we'll, I'm sure we'll have at least one episode, if not a, a bunch of content Ten for a episodes. couple episodes, um, all about Israel um, after that. So look forward to that. Um, and then in April, I think it's the 17th through the 19th, we'll be at the Pacific City Birding and Blues Festival, which happens in Pacific City, Oregon. We're leading festival. Uh, we're leading field trips, I think, on Friday and Saturday of mm -hmm. that festival. Yeah. Uh, should be a lot of fun. One of them is the Three Capes Tour, which is going to be awesome it's because be the Three Capes are beautiful. And, uh, yeah, that'll that'll be interesting. We haven't done that before, but it should be a good time. Yeah, and then in May, we are doing our grand um, Middle America trip <laughs> <laughs> where we are doing um, the Great Texas Birding Classic. Yep. We have decided our team names, which we, I don't think we we're not going to tell you. We're not going to tell them yet. We've decided our team names. Um, we're doing um, two different competitions. And then uh, we're going to be guiding at the biggest week in, in birding up in Ohio. And we'll also be doing a meetup on May 11th. Um, apparently, where the biggest week occurs, it's like, we haven't been there before, but it's at the observatory, which is kind of far outside of town. And mm -hmm. so, pretty much the only place to do it is in the lodge bar so we'll be doing uh women and birding you know everybody in birding social that night um so on may 11th so join us and uh, the day before hannah's you. birthday yes <laughs> hannah's, hannah's birthday eve last day i'm 30 <laughs> <laughs> um so also um we are going to be guiding at the indiana dunes birding festival right after that so we're it's we're it's just a whirlwind trying to get as much birding done as we possibly can in a week and a half long period. Have we ever told you our hashtag is no sleep club? <laughs> yeah, so we're not gonna we're not gonna sleep at all in uh, middle of May. We're just gonna we're just gonna r race around and bird and talk to people and party. Yeah, well, probably socialize. Socialize, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, we hope to see you for all of that, and thank you so much for listening to our podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. Maybe learned something. Please, please, please. Rate, review, and subscribe. Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Facebook, anywhere else you listen to us. If you'd like to connect with us on the socials, please follow us on Instagram at Hannah Goes Birding and also at Eric Goes Birding. Hannah with an H. Eric, Eric, nope. Eric with a K. <laughs> um, also on our Facebook page, Hannah and Eric Go Birding. Or you can email us at Hannah and Eric Go Birding at gmail.com. We also have a Twitter. It is... At We Go Birding. We also have a website, which is... GoBirdingPodcast.com. <laughs> Very good. Um, tell us what you hated. Tell us what you liked. And share the love of birding.